Uh, Mark 5 will be on page 840 in a Blue Pew Bible if you do not have one. Um, So before entering ministry, um, I spent about five years as a financial analyst with a focus on the broadcasting industry. All right, so following uh, profitability projections for TV and radio companies. And really um, what that meant was I had to um, really be steeped in this world of advertising. All right, I had to be steeped in the world of advertising trends. And so even after leaving that world, I'm still kind of fascinated by the fact of um, how marketing brands and agencies, how much they rely on these little 30-second spots to really make a difference in their company. Um, If you think about it, marketing agencies all up and down Madison Avenue have mastered this art. And the art is to both create a need in your life and then fill it in 30 seconds. That's their job, right? And so um, what happens is that at the start of a commercial, you have everything you need in life, right? Everything is content. But after just 30 seconds, now your life won't be complete until you have that newest tablet with a bigger screen and a sharper camera. And maybe you'll be watching the final round of the Masters today, and you'll go into a commercial completely content, but then coming out of a 30-second spot, you realize that your joy will not be complete this golf season unless you have that new Callaway driver. And you go into summer, and you have all your calendar mapped out, and you're good, but now, after 30 seconds, your summer will be a complete and utter failure unless you're on a cruise going to the Caribbean. Right? Commercials, they create a desire and then they seek to fill it right away. And, and I'm not hating on marketing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Everybody markets, whether they realize it or not. But more than not, marketing is important for things that are desires and not needs. Take a desire and try and make it a need. And, and a marketing campaign can only target a portion of the population. And in contrast, a true need in life requires zero marketing. For example, you will not need a commercial this week to convince you to drink water. The human body consists of 60 to 65% of water on average, and it's estimated that a body will shut down after just three or four days of receiving no water. Okay, so regardless of how rich you are, how well off you are, how healthy and famous you are, if you do not drink water this week, we won't see you here next week. Water is a great equalizer in life, right? It is for all people. If you want to live, your body needs it, which, um, by the way, I think it's vital. This is why it's vital, why we should um, support companies that provide clean water to third world countries, right? But that's a different topic. But, but physically, just objective truth, regardless of what you believe about faith or God or anything, it's objective truth that all people need water to survive. And they always have. And we think God designed us that way, right? He designed and created you in such a way where you need water to survive. And and according to the Bible, that is a shadow of a deeper truth, a, a deeper spiritual reality that we think it's objective truth that all people need Christ to live. All people need Christ to thrive, right? It's why Jesus came upon the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and he compares himself to water. Everyone who drinks this water that she's bringing up from the well, you're going to thirst again. You're going to drink now, and it'll satisfy now, but then you're going to get thirsty. But whoever drinks water I will give, he tells her, will have a spring that provides eternal life that will never fade, right? Jesus is not a marketing campaign. Jesus is a declaration of an essential need for all people, and, and even something as simple and basic as water is meant to point us to him. And that truth that Jesus is for all people will be shown this morning as we continue 
in our series in Mark. It's a, it's a series, if you're just joining us, that we began back in January. We took a one-week break with Easter, but now we're back at it, going verse by verse through this gospel. And we're in the middle of chapter 5. And it's a section of the gospel where Mark is just displaying the power of Jesus over and over again. And so in recent weeks, we saw two displays of just ferocious, untamable power. Do you remember the first time power over nature, where Jesus was in a sinking boat with his disciples from a violent storm, and Jesus got up and just commanded it to stop? Next, it was his power over the demonic realm. He and his disciples, after that storm, come upon shore in this kind of Gentile region of the Decapolis on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And right away, we were told, he was met by a powerful demoniac. But just like the storm, power of Jesus overcame it with a simple command. And he restored this man by driving out these demons who were defiling and torturing him. So that's where we left off, and we're going to jump back into Mark 5 today. And in our passage, Mark is going to again put the power of Jesus on display, but it's going to be a little different. It's going to look a little bit different. He's going to show this kind of other side of Jesus, kind of give us a fuller, more deeper picture of what he's able to do. This passage is what we will call a sandwich structure, all right? It starts with a story, and then it gets interrupted by another story. And then it ends by giving you really the the resolution of that original story. Um, Theologians call it intercalation. It's a common literary device used by Mark. I prefer sandwich structure, all right? It just makes a little bit more sense. I just visualize it better. Um, But here's the main point of this morning up front. Okay, I, I hesitate when I do this because I run the risk of just talking to myself for the rest of our time this morning. But I want to just give you the main point up front, and we're just going to unpack it and unravel it in our passage. Here it is. Jesus came for every kind of person and can be trusted by everyone. Jesus came for every kind of person and can be trusted by everyone. Listen, that's simple. I'm not going to be blowing any minds this morning, I don't think. But Mark is going to display this point in a profound way. And I've I've just been praying over this passage, praying over this sermon, praying and thinking of all of you. I, I do feel as if there's many in this room who need the simple point this morning. Do you believe Jesus came for every kind of person? And do you believe he can be trusted? I don't mean in theory that, yes, technically Jesus could be trusted. I mean, are you trusting him in your life right now? Like really leaning into and trusting him. All right, let's go. Mark chapter 5. We're going to start by reading verses 21 through the first part of 24. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Jesus came for every kind of person, and he's able to be trusted in faith by everyone. This is going to be on display three times this morning. First, it begins with Jesus and the man. Jesus and the man. So Jesus arrives back from the other side of the Sea of Galilee after this kind of mini getaway that didn't um, last very long and it was pretty wild, 
right? So they went across the other side. It wasn't exactly a time of rest. There was a life-threatening storm and then a face-to-face encounter with a demoniac and then, okay, time to go home. Let's go, all right? So we aren't sure where they are now. Mark doesn't tell us. I think it's reasonable to assume they're back in Capernaum, which is the home base of operations for Jesus thus far in Mark, staying at the home of Simon Peter. But either way, they come upon the shore and the crowds just gather immediately once again. Like, Jesus is just A-list celebrity status in this Jewish region. Like, drawing crowds of people that are just constantly looking out for him. And, and as he comes on shore, the crowds gather, and the crowds both loved him and hated him. There were some who really just wanted to fall at his feet and worship, and others who just wanted to kill him. This is what the crowds consisted of, but either way, they were fascinated by him. And then a grown man comes and falls at his feet once again. This just keeps happening to Jesus, right? The story before, Jesus comes upon shore, and a demoniac falls at his feet. And now he comes back on shore, and there's another man at his feet. I'm sure the disciples are just like, what is going on? Like, here we go again. This is starting to get out of control, but they realize quickly, this is a little different. It's not a demoniac this time. It's a man named Jairus. Everybody knows Jairus. He's one of the rulers of the synagogue. And I I just want to unpack that because I think we could read it and just easily skip over it and not understand the depth behind the fact of who Jairus is. Uh, the synagogue, again, is in, uh, in the first century. It's this kind of first century Jewish version of what we would think of today as a local church. Okay, so there was one temple in Jerusalem, and then every village had synagogues where Jews locally would gather weekly on the Sabbath to hear the scriptures taught and read. And the rulers or scribes of the synagogue were men who had say over Jewish law in these local villages. And they held a lot of power. I've said it before, but they were professor, rabbi, lawyer, judge, and jury. The rulers in a synagogue not only had to say over spiritual matters, but civil matters. They had it all. And so a ruler of a synagogue is a man of high distinction. Everybody knows Jairus. He was established. He commanded respect. And here he is, at the feet of Jesus, begging him to come help save his daughter because she's at the point of death. It's fascinating for a number of reasons. Men of this distinction, they would never show such reckless humility in front of a crowd of people. It was beneath him to fall at the feet of anyone. He was Jairus let alone an outsider who's kind of causing a mixture of responses. And here he is laying in the dirt, wailing, begging. And I think there's something for us even here. Isn't it true that when we are truly desperate, we tend to stop thinking about what other people think about us? Don't we? Like for the most part, we try and save face. In the most part, we're in front of others. We want to maintain our cool. We want to project a certain image. We are very aware of how people are looking at us, what they're seeing, what they're hearing. But you put yourself in a situation of true desperation, and you don't care anymore what other people think about you. That goes out the window. This man's daughter was dying. From Luke's version of the story, we find this is his only child. 
Further, Jairus, as a ruler of the synagogue, was part of a Jewish upper class, and they weren't big fans of Jesus. Right? In fact, we read, if you remember back in chapter 3, that this group had already decided that Jesus had to go. It's too much of a threat here. He's causing too much attention. He's drawing too many people away from them, and so they're plotting a way to destroy him. Now, to be fair, we don't know if Jairus was included in that group. All scribes and synagogue rulers were not Pharisees. But at the very least, Jesus would have been disruptive to his status quo. And probably made his life difficult. And at worst, he was part of this group that wanted to kill him just a couple chapters earlier. But now that he's facing a crisis, he comes and displays this faith in Jesus. It might not be a mature faith. It might not be even a faith of full understanding. But at this point, he'll just take anything. His daughter is on her deathbed. And he has seen Jesus heal powerfully before. And he's heard stories about Jesus. And now his own daughter is in this position. Jesus, come help me, please. I know you can do it. And then all Mark tells us is, and he went with him. The compassionate love of Jesus on display. Uh, Here's a man desperate because of his love for his daughter. And Jesus sees this. and, And he knows who Jairus is. Perhaps he knows the things that Jairus has said about him. Perhaps he knows the things that Jairus has been plotting against him. And yet, Jesus goes. He's compassionate. Okay, Jairus, let's go. Jesus came to save all kinds of people. And here we see a display of faith in Jesus from a distinguished, high-class, well-respected man in the community. And before we move on, it's worth noticing and noting how often it happens where one turns to Christ in the midst of a crisis. The reality is this, even today, for someone who does not believe Someone who is settled in their unbelief. They've already decided Jesus is not my Savior. I'm not into that. Maybe he's even hostile or she is hostile to the thought of belief. It will probably take something to shake them up that puts them on a search. For for many believers, and I know many of your stories in here, that this is part of your story. That God's greatest grace upon your life was allowing a crisis to occur. Because it puts you on a path. And it puts you on a path to seek after him. A crisis where we receive the grace to realize we can't do it on our own. And we can't fix this. And we aren't as strong or as in control as we thought we were. That is a moment of crisis. And it can be physical. And it can be emotional. And it can be spiritual. And it is the greatest gift in the world for those to whom it leads on a pathway to Christ. It was for me. And to be honest, some of you just haven't had that moment yet. Things have gone well enough where there has been no crisis and therefore just no real need to look into the person and work of Christ. Life has been pretty good. When I pray for unbelieving people that God has placed in my life, I mean just heart burning in prayer for them, here's something I will often pray. I'll say, God, Wound them gently, but wound them enough to see that they need you in their life. 
I will never pray harm on someone. I'll never hope somebody experiences a crisis, especially nothing like Jairus. But I know, I know it often takes a crisis for someone to awaken to the love and promises that Jesus offers. So wound them gently, Father. Arrange their lives in such a way where they need you. Put them on the path. And so for those in here this morning who don't believe or, or, or maybe you have just kind of flatlined in your faith or just kind of began to walk away from it, don't wait for a crisis to occur. This is your word this morning. You don't even need to listen past here. Fall at his feet and turn to him. Run, don't walk. He's faithful to come with you just like he went with Jairus. That's number one. Let's keep going. Chapter 5, the back half of 24 through verse 34. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say who touched me? And yet he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. First we had Jesus and the man and now, very creative outline, Jesus and the woman. Jesus and the woman. So Jesus and Jairus are on the way to Jairus' home. I assume they're moving kind of quickly, right? They're on a timetable, but, but the crowd is not easily shaken. The crowd is coming with them, and he's getting bumped, and he's getting jerked around, and I'm, I'm sure the disciples are surrounding Jesus, just trying to do some crowd control to pave the way. Um, if you ever watch football, I never really do, but occasionally it's just on. Um, if you watch football, if you, a high-profile game, it's, it's customary for coaches to go to the center field, the uh, 50-yard line, and shake hands after a game. And so if you have a really highly covered game, you will see like, immediately after the game is over, just reporters and cameramen and press people just flock to the middle. And you can see these coaches, they literally have bodyguards around them, guiding them to midfield, like just shoving people out left and right to get to this handshake. Like that's someone what I picture of what Jesus is going through right now. He's trying to get somewhere. But the crowds are just, just thronging about him, as Mark says, and they just can't get through. And he's just trying whatever he can. And in the midst of hysteria, there is a lowly, isolated woman who has been deemed unclean by the culture around her. And it's her that displays a high level of bold faith. We're told she has experienced a discharge of blood for the last 12 years. Most commentators take it to be that she had some form of a hemorrhage. 
that sustained a level of bleeding that just did not stop. And, and, and even more painful than, than the physical pain is the sociological pain she probably suffered as a result. Because you see, in the Jewish law, the discharge of blood made her ceremonially unclean. Losing blood was seen as a sign of death that, that would lead to life, as with the sacrifices performed in the temple. For a shedding of blood is required for the forgiveness of sins. And right, so you could go to Leviticus and you'll see these laws lined up of who's clean and who's unclean, what they have to do. Very specific laws. And, and women who have a monthly menstrual cycle had specific laws of, of contact and restriction in the midst of the community during that time. Jen Wilkin, she's an author and speaker that's just been recently very instrumental in my life. She says this, women's bodies every 28 days tell them a parable, a parable about the shedding of blood for the renewal of life. On the contrary, she says, men, they only bleed when something's going wrong. And she makes the point that women understand the depth behind the shedding of blood far more so than men do. And that that is at the core of the gospel. And, and the reason why they understand it more is because they're not just reading it and they're not just hearing it. They are feeling it. They feel on a physical, emotional level of what the shedding of blood is. But the discharge of blood during these monthly cycles, according to Jewish law, again, it's keeping women from the synagogue. It's keeping them from any meaningful community. The reality is this woman has been bleeding for 12 years and it has not stopped, which means she's probably had no contact with anybody for 12 years. You couldn't even hug a ceremonially unclean person. You couldn't make any contact with them. So she has been isolated in every possible way. Her husband, if she had one, she's gone. He's gone. She's tried everything to get better, Mark told us. She spent everything she had on doctors. And not only did they not help her, but their treatment made it worse. Now, can you imagine this? I don't think any of us could understand the full depth of her pain. But perhaps some of us can empathize with more than others. Some of you do live with a chronic illness or have struggled with a chronic illness and you can understand that side of just sustained physical discomfort over a long period of time. And you know more than anyone that doesn't just stay as a physical discomfort, that leaks into emotional and spiritual. Others perhaps understand the weight of feeling alone, of feeling isolated, where emotionally you feel like you're on an island and rarely does anyone even bother how to ask you how you're doing or spend any meaningful time with you. This is a bit of a side note, but as I'm preparing this and praying over this, it just strikes a nerve with me and reminds me that one of the most meaningful aspects of being part of a church ought to be this sense of real community it provides. Church is not just Sunday morning. Sunday mornings are vital, but just the exchanging of morning of hellos and goodbyes, that's, that's not the life-on-life -life community that is outlined as the church. Where we as a community have our head on a swivel for the opportunities to spend time with people who are not exactly like us. It is a blessing to do so, that you won't get those opportunities elsewhere. 
Let me give you one application of this. It should be normal in our church body where married couples and those with families are interacting with single men and women in meaningful ways. Because if we're not careful, the suburban church culture can convey this point where singleness is brokenness. And the church is just for those who are man and woman married with 2.4 kids and a dog. And it's just the families that can get catered to if we're not careful. And you know who are the ones that can be most impactful in pushing back against that stereotype? The couples and the families who are intentionally creating spaces and opportunities to share meals with and spend time with those who don't have the built-in community of a nuclear family. And it's not a charity case, right? It's an opportunity to display that we're all part of one same church family where we can learn from one another and disciple one another and cultivate these relationships. So, so do you want to take away, sometimes people say, like, just give me something to do. I need something to do. Here's something to do. Invite them over. Couples, families, you probably live in a larger space. They probably can't have you over. Have them over. Throw an extra plate on the dinner table once a week. It's okay that your house is a mess. And it's okay that there's toys all over the place. Have them over. And, and, and single men and women, say yes. Have spaces of meaningful time where we can cultivate and show that we're all part of one church body and there are a few couples and families who I know do this very well at Grace, and I'm so thankful for them, and I want to see it more. I want to see it happen more, because there are many issues that people are going to deal with in the church. Loneliness shouldn't be one of them. This woman in Mark 5 had a significant problem, but it was outmatched by an even more significant faith. Like, talk about taking a risk. She works her way through a crowd, and she's touching people when she shouldn't be just to get to Jesus to touch him, which she definitely shouldn't do. But again, just like Jairus, when you're desperate and you believe Jesus might be able to save, there's no stopping you. If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And she does it. She gets there and she does it and immediately her blood dries up. Like 12 years and like that, she's better. Like she can feel it. It's gone, literally. Can you imagine this? What a moment this was for her when bold faith crosses paths with divine power. It sets the world on fire. She's better. And Jesus knows what happened, but he publicly asks, hey, who touched me? Not because he didn't know. He wanted the opportunity to publicly affirm this woman's faith. So he calls it out. His disciples are like, you crazy? Everybody's touching you. And this woman hears Jesus asking, and, and now her joy is met with fear. Because she knows she should not have done that, according to her culture. And so she falls before him and confesses the whole truth, Mark says. And I'm sure at this point, everyone's just disgusted at her. Who does she think she is? giving her looks, the nerve of this woman. The disciples are probably, their, their, their blood is boiling, and they're ready to drive this woman away. Jesus is on his way. He's got important work to do. What are you doing here? And Jesus takes this, and he steps into this space, and he says something that no one expected. Takes her by the hand. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease.
church. When faith intersects with divine Christ-centered power, watch out. Jesus saves all kinds of people. Jairus, a distinguished man from the community who everyone wanted to be around, and now a lowly woman who no one wanted anything to do with. But do you notice that while their differences separate them in, in the world's eyes, their common bond of a desperate faith and desire for Jesus unites them together. For the people of God, our unity in Christ is far greater than our diversity in everything else. All right, on to the third. Let's pick it up at verse 35 to the end of the chapter. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put, he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Third, Jesus and the child. We have Jesus and the man. We saw Jesus and the woman. Now Jesus and the child. And, and I don't have a lot of time to talk about Jairus again, but um, like, what was he thinking when Jesus stopped to talk to the woman? We're not told. You know what I would have thought? Jesus, are you serious? She's been bleeding for 12 years. She can handle 30 more minutes. We're on our way to my house. My daughter's dying. We're on a timetable here. Now, to be fair, that's my own sinful nature. That's not Jairus. But I wonder what he was thinking. And during that time, news is brought to Jesus and to Jairus. Sir, your, your father, your daughter, she's died. Why bother him anymore? There's nothing he can do now. And Jesus overhears this, and he steps in and says, and it, it gave me chills while preparing it. It's giving me chills right now. He just says, do not fear. Only believe. Jesus is not hurried or restricted by time. He doesn't feel pressure and, and nothing makes him nervous or, or anxious. Everything is in his timing and he is never late. Believe and just see what's going to happen. And they get to this house. And he only allows Peter, James, and John to come with him. This, this is really what will become his inner circle. It's the first time in the gospel that we're cued into this, that these three guys seem to have more access to Jesus than the others. But they go towards the house, and there are people just wailing and weeping loudly. Okay, this is going to sound a little strange. But in that culture, it was customary for families to hire professional mourners to come when a death was about to occur. Okay, that's what's weird, just granted, that's weird, but it would be loosely 
like how at funerals in our day, people would hire people from a funeral home. You might hire musicians to come and kind of handle funerals and logistics. Back then, there were people whose job it was to be hired to come mourn, to come and grieve over a death. And so they come upon this house, and there are people just weeping loudly because now this child has died. And Jesus comes and goes, why are you making such a commotion? She's not dead, she's just sleeping. Which is the Bible's way of often saying she's just temporarily dead. And we know that these guys are phonies because if you see their response, they go from weeping to just laughing like that. They start laughing at them. It exposes to them. They don't really care. They're just doing their job. They, they were hired hands. But listen, they've seen this before. They see death all the time. And typically when you're dead, you're dead. So they start laughing at Jesus. Right? There's, there's just this cynical nature toward him. Like, yeah, Jesus, like you could come change anything. Listen, this is just the way it is. The world's a dark place. She's dead. It's a cynicism towards Jesus that's still all too common. The idea of Jesus just coming in and transforming your life? No, like this is just the way it is. It's just a broken world that we're in. I, I don't believe you can actually change things. That's kind of ridiculous. This is just life. There's no use in fooling yourself or fooling ourselves that a man named Jesus can come and change everything. It's all too common. But he kicks them out, and he goes and gets mom and dad, and he brings them to the room together, and he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And this 12-year-old stands up, starts walking, and works up an appetite. Because Jesus says, I think she's hungry. Give her something to eat. Jesus can save all kinds of people. Men and women and children upper class and lower class and no class, the desperate and the distressed, the diseased and the dead. You put all of these stories together from chapter 5 and we see the power of Jesus is both ferocious and tender. His power is ferocious enough to calm storms and drive out demons and it's tender enough to have compassion for the man, to touch an untouchable woman and to raise a little girl to life. Jesus can be saved by all kinds of people, and he can be trusted in faith with all of our whole heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. And my simple question is, do you believe this? Do you run toward him and trust in faith in all things at all times? All too often we can fall into this trap of believing that just our little desires and our little lives are too small. And they're too insignificant. And God has much bigger things that he needs to worry about in the world. Or, or God is so big, he can't care about my little life. And so he's not concerned with me. And so as we close, just hear me this morning. God is big enough to handle our small requests. God is big enough to handle our small requests. And God is big enough to handle our big requests. And the key that you saw all along that pathway was faith. Believing that he can do it. And then when you believe that he can do it, we come to him with all of our burdens. Do not allow a crisis to drive you away from him. Let it drive you toward him. Put your faith in him. 
And if you have put your faith in him this morning, ask him to come. Ask him for healing, physical, emotional, spiritual. Ask him to reignite a flame in your soul because maybe you've just gone flatlined when it comes to faith and church and Jesus and everything's just kind of gotten, just, it's just not exciting anymore. Ask him to reignite the flame in your soul. Ask him to do it in the hearts of your loved ones. Ask him to lead you and our church in bringing about social change and shining a light in this dark world. To lead us in addressing biblical injustices all around us like systemic racism, like rampant poverty. Ask him to work powerfully through the church to see abortion abolished and bullying eradicated. He's big enough to handle all of our requests and he is ferociously powerful to overcome evil and he is tenderly powerful enough to restore his people. Jesus is able to save all kinds of people and he can be trusted in faith by everyone. Let's pray.